0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. You know the kind of guy who does nothing but bad things and then wonders why his life sucks? Well, that was me. Every time something good happened to me, something bad was always waiting around the corner. Karma. Karma. Now, I've never been much of a complainer, but lying in traction that night, knowing that I no longer had a home and no longer had a $100,000 lottery ticket, well, I think I might have cried if I wasn't afraid of Randy waking up and seeing me. Then it happened. I was just flipping the channels and he came on
1: forget about me I, I want to know about you
0: I want to know about Carson daily every time I see you you got a beautiful woman on your arm you got a talk show you got your own record company what's your secret well if you must know uh, I'm Satan <laughs> <laughs> I don't know seriously I uh, I mean I'm just I've been very blessed I also believe that what goes around comes around And that's how I try and live my life. You do good things, and good things happen to you. You do bad things, and it'll come back to haunt you. Karma. Karma. There it was. The secret of life coming straight from Carson Daly's lips to my morphine-laced ears. That's when I realized I had to change. So I made a list of everything bad I've ever done, and one by one, I'm going to make up for all my mistakes. I'm just trying to be a better person. My name is Earl.
1: if you're not familiar with that TV program, (laughs) it's all based on a very popular idea that has been around for centuries. And it's this concept of karma. Uh, And in some form, it's really at the heart of almost every religion. There's this sense of you reap what you sow, what goes around comes around. You know, whatever whatever you experience in life, you experience because you brought it upon yourself. If you live right, good stuff happens to you. If you live badly, then you suffer bad stuff in your life. And it's all predetermined. You know, it's all set fatalistically, quid pro quo. What goes around comes around. That's it. And in that whole belief system, God is nothing more than a faceless, impersonal power who does nothing more than weigh the balance scales of everybody's life. And that is not a new concept. That was around in Jesus' time. In fact, you may remember at one time that there was a man who had been born blind and and, um, as they were walking by, the disciples turned to Jesus and said, Lord, why is this man born blind? Who sinned? Was it his own sin or what is it his parents' sin? Is he reaping what he sowed or is he reaping what his parents sowed? By the way, that is a misconception of the concept of reaping what you sow. It is a misunderstanding, a very common one. But Jesus comes along, and he says something completely different. He says it's not a balanced scale. God is not this faceless, impersonal, weighing master of the scales. That God actually loves you. That God actually cares about everything in your life. And I said earlier, the most famous sentence in the whole Bible came from the words, the mouth of Jesus. John 3:16. And it really, in essence, is a description of the whole gospel of John. and you probably all know it. We're going to say it together this morning. Would you repeat it with me? All right? Here it goes. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life." Jesus says, "No. It's not karma. It's not reap what you sow. There is something that God has for you called grace. It is the love of God, and it breaks that karma cycle because you don't have to pay the price for what you've done wrong. In fact, God has done it for you. God really does love you. And it's not just words, because all throughout his life, all of Jesus' actions, all of his teaching was all about the same message. They were demonstrations of the very truth that God loves you, even to the very, very end. He died on a cross so that you would never have to question again in your life does God really love me? But we do. We do question that, particularly when we go through times of grief or difficulty or suffering. What is one of the first questions we ask? What did I do to deserve this? God must be punishing me for something. I must have really messed up if I'm going through this kind of a thing. It's the question. We revert back to this sense of karma. If something bad's happened to me, I must have brought it on myself. Well, you're not alone in those questions. In fact, near the very end of Jesus' life, some of his very best friends had that same question. The account is written at the end, well, but it's right around the middle of John's gospel, John chapter 11. And I'm going to kind of give a shortened version because it's a very long passage. So if you want to follow along, please do. But if not, just go ahead and listen to the story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then said the disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and you're going to go back? Skip down to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus, had been dead in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she ran out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that God, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he die, and whoever, lives it, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, son of God, who has come to this world. And after he had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who have opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Once more, Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Actually, the King James Version is, but Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) Honest, look it up. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So so they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. In that act, Jesus was once again demonstrating God's love. And what I want to look at this morning as we go through the story a little bit is, what does that mean? What does it mean that God so loved the world? What does it mean that God loves you? Because I think there's some really important lessons in this story. One of them is this, simply this, that because of God's love for you, there is no situation in your life that is ever beyond hope. Never. No situation. Now, see, if you believe in karma, then it's all fated. It's all predetermined. If you mess up, you will pay. Sooner or later, one way or another, it's going to catch up to you. It's all predetermined. Now, we like that concept for other people. <laughs> you know, we really, really like that when other people mess up on us, okay? But we don't like it quite so much when we apply it to our own lives. But see, that's the whole thing. It's like, it's like God is, is using this carrot and stick approach. You know, he puts a carrot out there, and if, you, if you'll be good, you get the carrot. And if, if that doesn't entice you, well, then I'm right here with the stick, too. And a lot of people have this sense... That God is out to get them. You can answer that now and then turn it off. It's why we have such a hard time with this concept of grace. Because we can't believe somebody doesn't have to pay for doing wrong. But for everything we know about Lazarus, he was a good guy. He was a good guy. He was generous, he was hospitable, he was godly. Everything we know about him from the scriptures is this was a good man. In fact, was one, His home was always open to Jesus. When Jesus and his followers needed a place to rest, to just get away, to have a retreat, to kind of just recoup and re-energize, they went to Lazarus' home. That little home in Bethany was Jesus' hangout when he really needed it. This was a good man. And yet, he comes down with a fatal illness. And, and when the word is sent to Jesus, and, and I don't know if you caught that as you read it, it says, because he la- loved Lazarus so much, he waited two more days. That's not love. <laughs> but it says he, he, he waited two more days. And then there's still some confusion about the whole thing, because he says, this, this will not end in death. And yet, Lazarus dies. And he says to the disciples, our brother Lazarus is asleep. We're going to go wake him up. And they say, well, well Lord, if he's sleeping, then let him rest that will be a good thing. He says, no, no, no. Flat out, he says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Now let us go to him. Well, if he's dead, why go now? I mean, what's going on here? Something you need to understand is there is always a purpose to Jesus miracles there was always a purpose and a meaning to it they was, these were not pointless things this was he was doing ministry he was not doing a sideshow there was a reason for all of this and, and by the way he had done other resurrections in the past little girl named Tabitha Peter's mother-in-law there were other resurrections that he had performed in the past but all those were kind of immediate right after the death And it could have been argued or explained away, like, well, maybe they were just in a coma. Or maybe, you know, they just passed out or something else. But this time, four days later, there's no doubt. And I think one of the reasons for Jesus' waiting is he wants to point out this is a hopeless situation. In fact, really, if you do the math, he waited two days. But by the time he gets there, Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. So the truth is, by the time the messenger was sent to Jesus, he may have been sick. But by the time the messenger got to Jesus, he was already dead. This was a hopeless situation. There is no doubt about it. And when Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, let us go to him. Thomas says to him, well, then let us go too that we may die with him. (laughs) That's Thomas. It's a hopeless situation. Well, if Lazarus is dead, let's just all go die with him, you know. So they go. They go, but they don't go to die with him. They go to bring life to a hopeless situation. There's no doubt. Lazarus is dead. He has been dead for four days minimum. He's been in the tomb four days. It is hopeless There is no chance that anything good is going to come out of this situation. And when Jesus finally gets there, here comes Martha running out to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now listen to those words. Lord, if you had been here, there's a mixture of emotions there's a mixture of conflicting thoughts and, and faith and all this going on in her brain. Lord, if you had been here, there's almost an accusation to it, an indictment of Jesus. Where were you when we needed you? At the time we needed you the most, you went wall on us. If you had been here, if you had been here, Lord, and there's this accusational tone to it, and there's also even a questioning. Lord, if you had been here, He wouldn't have died. Why didn't you come sooner? Don't you care? Despair. Maybe. Maybe if you'd come on time. Maybe. But now it's too late. He's dead. And maybe even a little bit of faith there. If you had come on time, you could have done something. My brother would not have died. So make no mistake, this isn't about her lack of faith. She's got faith because she knows if he had been here, my brother would not have died. She's got all these mixtures of questionings and doubts and faith and despair and accusation and all of it. It's all going on. And isn't that the way it is? I mean, isn't that truly the way that it is? When you're facing one of those kind of situations in your life that seem absolutely hopeless And you got all those conflicting thoughts and all those conflicting feelings about the whole thing. God, don't you care? If only you had been here. How can you be absent when I need you the most? I know you could have done something, but you didn't. And in the middle of all that, there's this little glimmer of hope. And she's almost like, it's almost a second thought. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. It's almost hope beyond hope. Do I dare even say it? God, I, I, I know even now, even now. And I think that is the mixture that very often we come to God with. Why is this happening to me? How could this, God, why aren't you, what's going on here? I know that even now, but boy, if you'd only done something sooner. And Jesus speaks to her, not answering all of her questions, but just makes this statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, notice he is not asking, do you believe in the resurrection? Although that's how she first answers it. Lord, yeah, I know he'll be raised at the end day. But that's not the question he's asking. His statement is, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? In other words, not do you believe in the resurrection. The question is, do you believe in me? Do you trust me? Even when it doesn't make sense. Do you believe in my love? Do you believe that this situation is not beyond hope? Do you believe in in me will you trust me and that's an expression of god's love will you trust me will you trust me now i need to point out lazarus is a distinct minority <laughs> most people in jesus day did actually die and stay dead <laughs> but But in reaching out to a hopeless situation, one of the lessons that I think God is teaching us in in his love is there's never any situation that's beyond hope. Everything is redeemable. Even if there's a total loss, even if it's a total wipeout, it is never beyond hope. It may not be a resurrection, but there is always hope because God has the ability to redeem tragic situations. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because of God's love, there is no situation that is beyond hope. And also, there is no suffering that he does not understand, that he does not comprehend, that he does not sympathize with you. One of the questions we have when we're hurting is, doesn't God care? Doesn't God care? Especially when the pain kind of is prolonged. It doesn't go away. It lasts Day after day after day, week after week, month after month even sometimes. And we're wondering, doesn't God care? And that's what's so confusing about this, that Jesus hears Lazarus is sick. He stays where he was two more days. I mean, even if the purpose was to confirm for a fact Lazarus was indeed dead, if that was the purpose and the point to it all, still it seems a little cold and heartless that he wouldn't come. Because I mean, after all, he may be dead, but Mary and Martha, they're still hurting. They need comfort. They need some help. Don't their feelings matter? Well, if you go by karma, no, they don't. (laughs) See, if it's all karma, if it's all what goes around comes around, if it's all predetermined, if it's all you brought it on yourself, then you really can't feel bad about it. You really can't feel sorry about it because that's just you brought it on yourself. It's your own fault. Suck it up. Get on with life. Deal with it. But Jesus brings something different to the table. Part of the thing you need to understand is a little bit of of John's audience. John writes his gospel specifically with the Greeks in mind. Um, and, And there was a very, very popular Greek theology. In fact, there was... Stoicism is what it was called, and that's where we get our word stoic. And it really came from this idea that if I can feel hurt, if I can feel pain, if I can feel grief or suffering, then other people have power over me. If they can do something to bring those feelings into my life, then they have power over me. And God cannot have anybody to have power over him, so he must be unemotional. And that's how the reasoning went. God is all-powerful. God cannot be controlled by anybody else. So if he's got emotions, he sets himself up as weak, so he can't possibly have emotions. That's why he's God. And a godly thing was to be to have what was called apathia. Our English word apathy. I don't care. Incapable of emotion. Because that proved how powerful you were. And so there's this whole belief system that not only is it that you brought it on yourself, but God doesn't really care. In fact, that's what makes him God. He can't possibly care. And Jesus comes along, and he says something different. He reveals God's heart. That God is a loving, caring, compassionate God. He really is. And Jesus comes to the tomb. And it says, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews that had come along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He just didn't have a little, you know, sympathy pang. He was deeply moved. The word is, it's, you can't hold it inside. It's the same word that's used to describe a horse that snorts. <laughs> have you ever been so so overwhelmed with something that you just it just <laughs> it just comes out that's the word that's used for Jesus and it goes on it says he wept now why does Jesus weep why does he weep now i can i can kind of if i try really really hard kind of put myself in Jesus place i mean not very often but every once in a while i kind of get choked up at stuff you know so so I can kind of relate. <laughs> but what I don't understand is why does Jesus weep? After all, he knows what he's going to do. There's no record that he wept at anybody else's funeral or anybody else's suffering. Why does he weep? He knows what he's going to do. Why doesn't he just say, hey, guys, I'll take care of it. Stop crying. There is something in his weeping. In which he is demonstrating the heart of God. I really believe that. I really believe that. God is not stoic. In fact, John actually seems to make a point of it because it says a second time in verse 38 Jesus once more was deeply moved when he came to the tomb. Bill Donahue says this Weeping is the most human, most intimate description of Jesus in the scripture. What is more elemental to the human soul than the shedding of tears? It separates us from all living things. Animals don't sob uncontrollably at the loss of a fellow member of the species or mourn their dead for days. To weep is to express the soul of humanity. If Jesus couldn't weep at the death of a close friend surrounded by a grieving family and neighbors, then he may have been God, but he was no human. The assertion that the word became flesh would have been a hoax. I think Jesus' tears are conveying that He understands your pain. He knows your hurt and your suffering. And whatever delay might be going on in your life, if you're going through one of those dry times or going through those extended periods of pain or hurting that we all go through from time to time, and you're wondering, where is God in the middle of this? Know this He is not unmoved by your tears. Don't give up, because whatever the delay might be, it is not because you don't matter to him. It is not because he doesn't care. Hang in there. Hang in there. The writer to the Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The reason for Jesus' tears is explained right there. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses so that we can approach Him with confidence and find mercy and find grace. I think all because of Jesus' tears. Then maybe the greatest truth of God's love is this, that there is no sacrifice that He is unwilling to make. No sacrifice. Here is where Christianically... Christianity radically parts company with every other religion in the world. This is the one thing that Christians believe that is different than any other belief system there might be. Because Christians believe that at the core of who God is, God is a God of sacrificial love. And that is unique to the Christian faith. God is not impersonal. God is not fatalistic. God is not some higher power. He is not capricious, ill tempered, needing to be appeased. He is a self sacrificing, unconditionally loving God. And only, only Christianity promotes that belief that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. In every other belief system, you have to work it out. you got to figure it out. you got to make up for whatever you've done wrong. But in Christ, we stand forgiven and free and loved and accepted and graced and mercied because of Jesus. That he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. As we're going to do this morning. That God did it for us. Because that's what love does. God's love for you cost him something. But that's what love does. Love gives. Love sacrifices. Love pays. In bringing life to Lazarus on that day, Jesus, in essence, was signing his own death certificate. Because of that trip that he made to Bethany to bring life to one person... He was signing his own death certificate. He knew it, and his disciples had a sneaking suspicion about the whole thing, too. Because when Jesus says, okay, let's go to him, they say, but rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. Are you going back there? They know what's coming. They can see the writing on the wall. Jesus knows what's happening. If he makes this trip, if he makes this trip, this is the beginning of the end. But he does. You see, we often read that, that sentence, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We always kind of read that with this understanding that God so loved, is as, as in God had so much love that he gave. But that's not the word so there, okay? Literally translated it is God loved the world like so. There's a big difference It wasn't that he stored up all this love and he had all this love, so he did something about it. His doing something about it was an act of love. This is how God loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Love gives, love sacrifices. And if you want to know what it is in your life that you really, really love, Look at where you're willing to make sacrifices, because that's the indicator of your true heart. Our son, in his first year at college, when he was away down in San Diego, in his first semester, um, his, he had a lung collapse, and um, and so he called. It was a Friday night. We're at home. We're watching TV. We get this phone call, and our son calls up and he says, "Hey, mom. Hey, dad. My lung collapsed today." I'm going to a concert tonight. I'm going to go sit in the mosh pit. You know, it's just like no big thing. You know, so I'm I'm I think well hey if he's up he's up talking he must be okay. Betty's like we got to go down there. <laughs> we got to go. We got to be there. This is serious that We got to go. And I'm you know I'm kind of trying to be the dad, but inside I'm kind of starting to get a little bit nervous about this whole thing too. And so I was man get online. We got to get a ticket. We got to go down there. That's what love does. You don't spend the next 24, 48 hours trying to find the least expensive airline flight. You just buy what will get you there. (laughs) And believe me, I'm really good at spending 48 hours trying to find the cheapest airline (laughs) flight. But it's like, no, we got to be there. Our son is in trouble. Our son is ill. Got to be there. On a far greater level, God looks at this world. He says, this world is in trouble. These people are destroying themselves by the way they are living out their lives. I got to be there. And he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. John goes on and tells us the debate that goes on among the leaders. They say to each other, if we let him go on like this, now that he's risen this guy from the dead, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And one of them says, do you not see it's better for one man to die for the people than for this whole nation to be destroyed? And it says from that day on, they plotted to take his life. It was the beginning of the end. But that's why he came. Because of his love for you, there is no sacrifice that he is unwilling to make. Jesus himself said, not more than a few days later, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Philip Yancey, in his book, Jesus I Never Knew, writes this. Jesus standing before the tomb. At that very moment, Jesus himself hung between two worlds. Standing before a tomb stinking of death gave a portent of what lie before him in this damned, literally damned world. That his own death would also end in resurrection did not reduce the fear or the pain. He was human. He had to pass through Golgotha to reach the other side. Lazarus' story, seen in full cycle, gives only a preview of Jesus' future, but also in a compressed view of the entire planet. All of us live our days in this in-between time, The interval of chaos and confusion between Lazarus' death and reappearance. Although such a time may be temporary and may pale into insignificance alongside the glorious future that awaits us, right now it is all we know. And that is enough to bring tears to our eyes. Enough to bring tears to Jesus' eyes. The resurrection of one man, Lazarus, would not solve the dilemma of planet Earth. For that it would take another man's death. John adds the startling, ironic detail that the miracle of of Lazarus sealed Jesus' fate. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. And from that day on, significantly, Jesus' signs and wonders ceased. Would you bow your heads with me? In a moment, we're going to close our time together, sharing in communion. But as we wrap things up here, I just want to ask, if you are in pain this morning, if you are hurting or struggling with something, I want you to know there is nothing you are facing that's beyond hope. Don't give in. If you're in the middle of all of this and it's taking long and you're wondering why such delay, doesn't God care, doesn't he understand more than you can imagine? And if you're wondering, can God possibly love me? Possibly forgive me. look at the cross and know he couldn 't love you any more than that. This one event had two radically different responses. Jesus asked, "Do you believe? Do you trust me?" And those who said yes, those who said yes experienced a miracle. They saw a new life, a life reborn. Those who were unwillingly, unwilling to give up their own power, they ended up in death. Now it's up to you and me. God has done his part. He's broken by grace this karma cycle. The question is, will you say yes to him? Will you say yes to him? As we close in prayer. Especially if you've never taken that step of faith before. You've never understood the depths of God's love for you. You've never understood that he died on a cross and paid a price so that you wouldn't have to. I want to invite you this morning to take a step of faith. And you say, Lord, thank you for loving me. I got a long list of bad stuff that I can't make up for. I need your forgiveness. I want to trust you today. And make that your prayers would close. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you that it's not a balanced scale in which I am always in debt, but that by your grace you came and paid a price deeply for me. And in that act of love, gave to me a new life. And for each one of us here this morning, we say yes to you. Lord, I put my trust in you. Give me that new life and forgive me of my past. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.